0: And welcome to the Dicer Screaming Podcast. Ah! Hey, how you doing, folks? Yeah, it's been a little bit. Uh, the holidays were a little rough to us, and
1: uh... oh, particularly to me. Uh, aside from being absolutely overfilled with food, I've also been overworked to within an inch of my life. Ah. But not letting that stop me, we're still here. Yes, and
0: coming at you with more new content. So
1: expect no less. From the plucky little podcast that keeps fleas and ticks off your werewolf for up to 30 days.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> Is it by prescription only?
1: No, it's over op- the counter. Wow.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, folks, well, we're here to keep those fleas and ticks away on your were creatures. <laughs> Use only as directed. Your werewolf will thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, we're back. Uh, we hope the. Uh, Thanksgiving, for those who participated, was a good one. And yeah, we're back after our break. We talked about, during the break, to look up a couple podcasts. Um, oh my, it just slipped in my mind. I hate it when it does that sign of being old. <laughs> uh, oh, we have we a have
1: bundle. Oh yes, <laughs>
0: the science fiction. Uh, the elders of science fiction. Uh, going back and trying to place who the er science fiction author were. And of course, Mary Shelley, Frankenstein's. So it was off a, a clickbait from the New York Times.
1: Oh, and, and sure, I, I am in consensus with them. I mean, and uh, now it, it's not a radical opinion either. It's I feel a widely shared opinion by science fiction enthusiasts who are looking for that precise moment where the transition from speculative, fantastical fiction started to come to an end in the rise of, like, scientific fiction with science as the principal driver began to take hold. And, yeah, I mean, that puts you squarely at the point of Mary Shelley.
0: Yeah, and uh, Pulp Librarian took the bait uh, from that uh, New York Times article, and uh, he agreed with a lot of the things we were. I like where he ended up. Uh, you can look it up on Twitter at Pulp Librarian. Uh, he's on there. Also, I linked it on my on uh Twitter account as well. But uh, yeah, we talked a little bit about it and uh Frank Paul said that uh good science fiction should predict not just the automobile, but traffic jams. <laughs> and I think that was a good place to end it. And That's a
1: wonderful uh thoughtful comment there too because uh you know, simply postulating the good, like the the wondrous, the beneficial, mm-hmm. uh is not enough. It's also anticipating uh the crises and the questions that like come out of changing technology, which, uh, perfect example with Mary Shelley, you know, man playing God has its terrible consequences. Uh, <laughs> you know, he, he created to question the creator. Uh, why would you do this to me? So it hurts here and everything sucks.
0: I don't want to live in this world anymore. <laughs> yeah, it, you're not wrong, and I think that uh, this is going to lead us to come back and talk about that middle era of science fiction that we just had to gloss over, where we just picked three authors. We didn't get to talk much about Ellison, Paul, Saberhagen, uh, Wolf. Yeah, I bear. mean, I
1: believe we uh, we Wolf might bear. have mentioned Spinrad in passing, but guys like Norman Spinrad were also like that, like hidden backbone. Well, Philip that, K. Dick. I mean, yeah, holy cow. yeah, like these emerging giants. Uh, who were kind of like the velvet underground of sci-fi writers, where not everybody knew who they were. But everybody who wrote was like, I want to write like that.
0: Yeah, it did lead to a burnout at the later stages. I think uh, that was important to cover. Uh, Pulp Laverian hit that, that. A lot of people got kind of burnout on that very dystopic, somewhat depressing, futurist view. But, hey, when you looked at what they were up against at the time, like everything was G-Wow, Golly Whiz, Shebang, <laughs> Fly to the Moon, Ray Guns.
1: Yeah, nineteen fifties pastel suburban optimism. You know, if you're surrounded by that twenty four seven, it is super easy to you know, like, I <laughs> I feel a darkness inside me, uh, or it's like all of a sudden it's I want to paint it black. Yeah, everything. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that that very sterile monoculture itself created. A enormous desire to. I want to look at the seedy, dark side of life because it's something that isn't this bland gruel of existence. But I can totally see where a diet of nothing else is going to wear thin.
0: That the future's so bright, I have to wear shades. Futurism that was just so squeaky clean and sanitary. Like, hey, it's great that computers are everywhere, but what about if computers decide to turn against us? You know, the old robot um, trope. You relating back to even the story of the golem
1: yeah which (laughs) once again you know science fiction it it's it too has its literary roots uh, and those roots are just as familiar to us uh, you know and in some cases biblical or rabbinical in origin because those are inspirational stories that people connect to
0: but not to pat ourselves on the back i was really proud i really listened to the episode of the three greats and i I did see back, there were some comments left in the uh, back section on, uh, oh. that uh, they were, some people weren't too happy with Haylin as one of ours, but, uh, you know, I think uh, well, Jason put it pretty well that, you know, he was controversial at times, but I think it was just trying to get people to think more than it was in an endorsement.
1: Yeah, uh, it, and I... I am glad that we did at least mention that during the course of that podcast, that uh, it was not an endorsement of his his ideas and writing. And even he himself, when pinned down, was like, look, am I telling you that this is the way the world should be? No. But, you know, this is an experiment. This is a, a thought. It's a perspective. What if things were unfolding in such a way? What would the effects of that be? You know, and that deep thought... That's why they called him the professor, man, the dean. The dean, yeah. The The dean of of sci-fi. He was a deep thinker, and, you know, he wasn't sitting there pontificating, saying, like, well, this is what the world should be like. No. He created very disparate and different ideas and expressed them extremely well. Uh, And I'm still a little traumatized that the movie universe did not do much justice to his creations. Yeah. But hey, discussion for another time.
0: Right, we'll uh, we'll definitely be revisiting the uh, greats of science fiction again. Uh, definitely with uh, maybe some Traveller content as well. I think. oh yeah yeah I think the new uh, Mongoose is releasing a new version of Traveller, the classic that doesn't really change anything. You don't have to go out and buy it. It's just a compila- uh a redo and a compilation of some of the errata and some supplemental material all under one cover. So it's uh, a little bit bigger book. But um, a little bit more updated graphics.
1: Hmm. So Most excellent.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I've
1: um, been very happy to see Traveler coming back as well, because it's one of the greats. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we've glowed about it enough. Yeah. Before, so, no point in, you
0: know. Oh, well, we got, we didn't even tell you what the topic was going to be last week, because the portents were blurry, because we were <laughs> debating about a couple things, and then uh, the, the
1: holidays. The was exhausted. Yeah, so... Like, even even the coffee was not enough. Like, I, I was eating the grounds and still nodding off. I'm, just, I'm so tired. They make me work like dog. Uh, yeah, it was not a pretty picture, but... Uh,
0: but this week, we'll be able to give you a portion of what's coming next week. So, yeah, we will be coming at you next week. Uh, probably taking a brief break for Christmas, just letting you know.
1: Oh, yeah, that's well off in advance, but uh, I, I have... S- am reasonably sure that I've secured Tuesdays off, uh, which may be my only day off for some time to come. Oh, good Lord. Until we get over the holiday hump. And yeah. Once we're out the other side and into January, I am a free man. Mm. Uh, so, that will be a sweet relief. It'll be nice to get back to a traditional our traditional
0: schedule. But anyway, so what does the Tassiomancer have in store for us? What what fortunes can you divine?
1: Well, this time I didn't exhaust our entire supply of coffee just trying to stay awake after work. So, uh, the Tassiomancer has gazed into the coffee grounds mm-hmm. at the bottom of the cup, and what he has determined is that the Harn campaign setting, ah, the, the game Harn...
0: Yeah, Columbia is... Games Magnum Opus. Well, and one of their big ones. They've done some other stuff.
1: but Yeah, this, this is a big one of yesteryear. It's not one of the most famous games out there. But everybody who had a copy of Dragon Magazine had seen these ads. Uh, and it had a respected and admired place in fantasy RPGs. So
0: Yeah, it was a much... Um, as we talked about fantasy wargaming before from Bruce Galloway. This was a more approachable and reasonable attempt at the same type of setting. Although put in an alternate world with its own nomenclature and its own prehistory. So you weren't delving into having fights over who idea of old English literature was the best. You weren't having to fight over the basic uh, incarnations of Beowulf throughout the entirety of the Anglo-Saxon environment.
1: Getting trapped in Canaan wars uh, between historians (laughs) may sound like an unlikely issue, but I assure you, in early gaming, this was not unusual. Yep. (laughs) Who is the greater expert on medieval lore? Uh, yeah, that argument happened. But so, right, but, ready... but,
0: but putting that away, I mean, those guys were from Cambridge, so what would you expect? <laughs> you couldn't expect much less.
1: Yeah, uh, well, uh, honestly,
0: but yeah, if, if you wanted people to die, from going a... to have
1: that argument. That's
0: the group of people to have it. True, so. and if you're going to die from an infected wound uh, from the battlefield, Harns' the system
1: is doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not. <laughs> so, yeah, that's your augury. Uh, the Tassiomancer has gazed upon the coffee grounds in the bottom of the cup and has seen Harn in the very near future, coming to a podcast near you.
0: Well, specifically to this one. Yes. So, yeah, so we're also going to be closing out the year with a retrospective of the entire year, um, the blazing dumpster fire that was, as opposed to the triple alarm blazing dumpster fire was the year before.
1: Yeah, honestly, uh, 2021 has been an enormous improvement over 2020, That. Yeah, yeah, 2020 was pretty rough on everybody, so uh, <laughs> nobody was covered in glory in 2020, but 2021 has had some, some good moments here and there that I'm pretty proud of. Yeah,
0: uh, nothing too much to complain about, I don't think. Um, every year has its rocky edge to it. But here we are uh, talking about stuff, and all we're doing is just burning up airtime on your dime. And we want to thank the patrons for sticking with us as uh, it's getting towards the end of the year. It's time to look at those things. This is the last of uh, November 30th. We'll be going into December. So we just wanted to do a couple call outs. We'll keep uh, that up. And uh, just as we get into the topic here, one last uh, item of business is We want to cover that you, we will be having uh, some merchandise coming up, uh, coffee mugs primarily, but maybe t-shirts later on as we're nearing... A onerous but somewhat complicated cycle of getting our logo done. We didn't want to be seen as just two angry guys on the internet because, I mean, how novel is that? A podcast of two angry guys talking about things that piss well, them off.
1: And it would be ridiculous because, honestly, in retrospect, uh, we're not two angry guys. You know, I mean, it's not like we haven't had some moments of frustration here and there, but I. I don't feel that the podcast is misnamed because there is a certain irony. The dice are screaming. because
0: Well, yeah, it's an allusion to the trees are screaming.
1: Yeah, an old magic deck. uh, And it it implies that we're subjecting those poor dice to just nightmarish (laughs) events. Not that we ourselves are angry. Uh, So uh, there was a misnomer there. And we're going to try a different type of logo.
0: But I also want to thank those few who have so nominated they're... us for an Emmy. Now, we're way at the bottom, so <laughs> yeah, nobody needs worry. Um,
1: I just touched that somebody even mentioned I know it. Like, I was like, what halls. in the world?
0: How did we even get on it? I... <laughs> <laughs> so, Where were you when I only got two likes at the Ennies?
1: Uh, creating two accounts, bro.
0: Well, they haven't started voting yet, but I mean, somebody put us up there, so... You it wasn't me thank you yeah, thanks thanks folks. We really appreciate it. It t- it really touched me to get that and I was like, well, uh, I guess we can make a trip out to Gen Con. I mean not that the wife won't uh, like be jumping for joy. We're going to Gen Con.
1: yeah, I know that, nobody boy, you don't have to like trank dirt people and haul them in the back of a truck chained up you know just... you're coming and you're gonna like it or else. No, it's not, not that level of complicated. It's more like, hey, you want to go to Gen Con? Oh, my God, yes! <laughs>
0: exactly. Uh, so, yeah, thanks, folks. And so, here we are. What are we going to do for content? I know. Let's talk about swords.
1: Sworded! Sworded, ah! Oh. oh, man! That's the worst game I ever played! I know. <laughs> Thank you, strong man. So It's been a while since we
0: covered a meta topic, and we've been talking things about armors and shields. We've been batting it around a couple uh, months now. How do we want to approach this? And I was kind of hesitant at first because I said there's not a lot of meat on the bone. I think we're just covering armor, shields, and weapons. But one thing that really, um, that Mike brought up, I thought, was that, you know, there's one item that has carried throughout the ages. The ownership of a sword. Yes. Now, anybody could own an axe. As a matter of fact, many Vikings had axes and were very proficient with them as well as the Saxons. Oh, yeah. But a sword was a mark. The you know, with
1: with their particular type, the Gallic axemen. Mm -hmm. Uh, But an axe was both a tool and a weapon, you know. But a sword, there was very little else you could do with it except Mm. fight.
0: Yep, it was a one-use weapon.
1: And that, in itself, marked it as a notable item. Uh, mythologically, I mean, it's embedded in people's imaginations. Uh, it has this place in our history, uh, you know, not as a tool uh, for anything but conquest and conflict, you know, but as we look at genres like swords and sorcery, yep. that's 50% of the genre. Uh, exactly. So, you know, uh, nobody ever created a giant genre called, uh, you know, ran Sewers and Sorcery. Yeah, just, <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> Pikemen of Destiny. You know, uh, it just, there isn't the same connection. There's something visceral and poetic and wonderful about our love of the history of the sword. And, so and swords today. go
0: through all cultures. I mean, yeah, from worldwide. the Philippines, the pairing to uh, the Chinese, into India... And all through Western and Europe. And oh, yeah.
1: Uh, if it weren't for India, uh, Damascus steel would have never come to be. You know, like and the, the there's
0: games. an argument to be made for the obsidian edge clubs mm. of South American culture.
1: Oh, it's unquestionably a sword type. Huh. It is different in design. People think of it as kind of like a morning a star, but it's not. Okay, it is slashing and cutting. It is wielded much in the same way a sword would be wielded. So the comparison holds. It is decidedly Mm sword-like.
0: So anyway, we're just kind of setting the stage for it. Yeah, Uh, this is our
1: homage and our ode to the sword itself. Which
0: looms large in the fantasy genre because of all the items that are out there. The sword has received the most treatment in gaming literature and in the lore. I mean, uh, let's, so I would like to start off by just talking about historical swords, and then we'll launch into magical swords. We've talked about several magical swords in the past, specifically the uh, Book of Swords from Fred Saberhagen. Yeah. And that alone tells you a lot about it, but also in the game itself, we talked about the nine swords of power. We've touched on them, but we'll also touch about here. Plus, uh, a certain sword that uh, bears the name of a uh, dark, malevolent, uh, evil fighter who is near legendary. Almost as legendary
1: as Wardu. d and famous, <laughs> the Sword of, of Khaas. So, uh, but, pardon yeah, me. Perfect example. I mean, and look at the, the swords listed, uh, like the Defender uh, model, which... You know, right. the, the potential names given for Defender-type swords uh, were, you know, things like Answerer, uh,
0: you know. Backbiter, <laughs> backbiter. But, yeah, so let's <laughs> but, talk about the uh, historical swords. So, real, really uh, early on, there's, and I, I'm going to take you down a rabbit trail on this
1: one. we're going to start with the dagger?
0: Yeah, I think right off the bat, early on, was um, the earliest swords that we know of. First pieces of iron. No, oh, well,
1: not so much iron, but uh, if you if you roll it back all the way to the, well, yeah. the age of copper. Uh, right, there was the flint
0: daggers, forgive me, I, I meant to say something else, but I was going to talk about a movie that I watched recently, and it was on uh, Cinema Massacre, and it was called Iron Master, and it's a terrible, terrible movie, but it had one part in it that I really liked, that the first sword they found was from the remnants of a volcano that had let a piece of iron in the shape of roughly a sword. And this was the first warlord, so to speak, who takes advantage of it and beats everybody up. I mean, if you want to watch the movie, I'm pretty sure Jason has watched the movie several times and will tell us all about it. But I will say that Iron Master is a pretty good film from that kind of exploratory prehistory. But uh, yeah, the first Flint Daggers really were the uh, first attempt to to really get at what we're talking about, a specific use item, but still it was variable.
1: Yeah, the, the, the idea of, uh, you know, knives, they were not actually historically used so much combatively. The, the stone knives were the tools used after the fight was over, and the sharp stick was, like, right in charge of, like, I want to keep away from this thing, but I also want to kill it. Then the stone-sharpened flint knap blade comes out and you're cutting away the hide and, you know, sinew and all of that, Mm. and then you have dinner. But eventually the day came that metal came into play. And most of this, it had a lot to do with agriculture. People got tired of being nomads. They settled down. They stayed in one place where the food grew easily. They cultivated it. And then, because farming is hard work, they made tools. And it was in the cultivation of tools that most of the weapons that have evolved beyond, like, hunting-gathering, which was the the simple atlatl, the spear, the, you know, stone knife, stone axe. Club. uh, You know, the club. Those things started to be less relevant to everyday life compared to, say, for instance, the sickle uh, for the cutting of grain. Or, like, the machete for the cutting away, the clearing of land. Uh, like like the crudest early versions that, of short sword slash Falchins. Uh, you started to see these designs show up for everyday work tools. And then, of course, you had people who had worked their lives using exactly these tools. And what better to use as a weapon than a thing you know how to handle? Definitely. So when you watch the first armies begin to form thousands of years ago, you see them using weapons that bear a... Not exactly coincidental similarity to the things that they worked with their whole lives. And that's when the sword in the Middle East, about 4,000 years ago, makes its appearance as an everyday weapon.
0: Yeah, and you start to see more archaeological evidence of, like, the Kopesh. Oh,
1: yeah. That's a perfect example. of Coming the into sword. the
0: sickle blade, where it was made a little bit more straighter and longer, but made for still a singular purpose of just chopping people into small parts.
1: And the same thing was happening around the globe. Uh, in China, you know, like the uh, development of uh, copper-slash-tin early proto-bronze blades. Uh, it, now a famous example of that would be the recently recovered uh, sword of Bojian at uh, it was made for an emperor, you yes, uh, or king at that time. But beautiful craftsmanship, and it was inside its scabbard the whole time. And when it was found, you know, behold, uh, when drawn from the scabbard, it was still sharp. Superior craftsmanship, even in the era of bronze. You know, iron was not even an issue at that point thousands of years ago. So. Until you get to the Hittites.
0: Yeah, those nasty guys, those Hittites. With Uh, their unwashed beards.
1: Well, up there in the, uh, the, I believe, the southern Caucasus Mountains, there just happened to be a lot of iron deposits. And somebody finally got a fire hot enough to get iron to melt. And at that point... Yeah, I,
0: copper was a pain in the butt to melt. It's about 1,900 degrees Fahrenheit to get it down to...
1: And, and iron is even worse. Oh yeah,
0: and yeah, you're getting up to the 3,000. And so when people were used to working with copper, there were new ways to find out. You know, I just watched a fascinating review on African tribesmen who used just hand techniques to make iron. So this to smelt iron. Ooh. Yep, just with a common tool, or their bare hands, roughly, just making stuff, and how they were able to make these very hot furnaces out of just mud and clay. And it for can, one use, yes. Yeah, so it can be done, but... Yeah. And they make the Hunga Munga and several other items from it. Really? And I was like, yeah, that, that's how it starts. And when it's a fascinating look that they're still operating on a almost a post-Stone Age level of craftsmanship for iron. And because it's worked, they've never had, and it's not because they're primitive or silly. It's because this is something that is reliable, it is replicatable, and it's easy.
1: Yeah. That. What's the, the harm in that? I mean, you know, <laughs> if you know that something is guaranteed to work, experimentation becomes less of an enthusiastic undertaking. Yeah, and
0: they're just not making simple pig iron. They're actually making a very strong alloy. And that's the whole key right there, is I think that when we looked at Bronze Age,
1: Yeah, we, lots of cultures were experimenting with early iron. Uh, but, but it was
0: difficult to work with and it was also difficult to extract. If you found a good open source of it, it was easy to
1: get. So but there was it, a wonderful transition period where the Iron Age was kind of happening everywhere with people like experimenting with like mixed iron-slash-something-else metals.
0: But the true age of the blade came in steel, and of course in Western culture we tend to think of it as the high Middle Ages, but was actually a little
1: bit before. Oh, quite a bit. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Like those... the,
0: the common perception is the knights in shining armor and all that.
1: No, no, the real age of steel was like that. Those first weapons that started to be forged with carbon dust. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh again, same area. That that was the Caucasus Mountains. That yep,
0: and the antecedents to Conan Sumeria.
1: And everybody wanted those weapons. Okay, the the Persians were like, oh my gosh, these are the best things since sliced bread. <laughs> Uh, literally, yeah, everybody wanted to get them some of that uh, because thousands of years of uh, working with only the, what is it, copper and tin to make bronze, you know, that that went on a very long time. If you, we're in a culture at this point where technology happens so quickly that an advancement takes place multiple times in a single person's lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is unimaginable to us that like all of the technology around you, would remain absolutely identical for almost 10 generations before any variation in it came along. Now, welcome to what was extremely different about the ancient world. So, the advent of iron moving out of the Bronze Age, and then the eventual intrusion of steelmaking, uh, albeit not highly advanced steelmaking, making. Yeah. You know, these were big, momentous changes. Right,
0: you weren't just getting common pig iron out of it. You were getting actually alloyed yeah. steel that could hold not only an edge, but had a tensile strength twice that of any other known material.
1: And that's when you began to see things go way past the old Roman gladius, you know, where they had the 22-inch blade, uh, or before that even, like, the, the leaf-shaped, almost triangular. Well, of the,
0: uh, of the uh, uh, myrmidians and Spartans.
1: Yeah, those leaf-shaped blades started to go out of style because, with the advent of steel, you can make very lengthy blades. And that's where we we're talking about that Middle Ages thing. The long sword. For the first time, the dude's got a three-foot-long sword. And they're like, yeah! Oh, yeah, well, you know, those are totally, like, fragile and will probably break. Nope. Yep. And steel. you can really
0: parry with these things. And the Chinese and uh, Vedic, Hindu-Indian, uh, the warrior caste took advantage of this very... You see the warrior catch, just like the knight in
1: the... Oh, they welcome the technological upgrade.
0: Yep, and they grew quite powerful during that time. And, yeah, the English uh, longsword, the Viking or Saxon broadsword, meat cleaver, essentially. (laughs) They may have had small and different design changes, but they were all still the same. They were still a cleaving, thrusting weapon. And more importantly, the English longsword had the elegant, elegant use as also being used from horseback.
1: I'd, li- I'd love to mention a historical anomaly. There's uh, ETSOC-type swords. Uh, E-T-S-O-C. I believe that's how it's uh, said. but
0: uh, so we get from reading rather than listening.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't tell you how that one was pronounced, but... It was a very narrow window period where a certain design of swords, uh, as they were growing longer in that early period, was to make them long and sharp and pointy, and they were used in a thrusting fashion, uh, much like a pike. Now obviously that went out of style very quickly because so much of fighting was more of a hack-and-slash thing, and if you wanted to do something like that, that's a waste of most of the metal. So eventually that's replaced by, you know, like, well, why not, like, obviously what you want is a spear. (laughs) The argument had to have been had at that point is, like, are you seriously telling me you're going to use up 36 inches of steel to make a frickin' spear? How stupid can you actually be? Just, like, here's six feet of wood, and then we'll put one foot of steel on the end of the piece of wood, and we're back to the spear, a thing we already know how to build, you moron uh so the etzak sword you know like that that was just one of those little hiccups.
0: mike was a uh, celtic uh <laughs> weaponsmith in a former life uh. but yeah that brings us to a couple other swords like the falcata <coughs> oh good one. and also which one of my favorite swords from the early uh iron age and because you know the romans were so the gaul would Julius caesar scene like wow that's just an amazing blade that can be used in so many different ways and also the celtic early bronze sword our bronze age sword which was probably for it was somewhat i would actually put it superior to some of the greeks uh city states the athenian uh leaf blade
1: all right fair enough yeah they uh,
0: had you know and they were considered uh tribal at that time oh very but they had this high level of uh Smithing that uh, yeah, Scarabray and other places that have been found now are starting to show more evidence that hey, there were more than just wandering tribes fighting it out over land.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, the there the were-
0: idea was is of course that there's a there, there's a different dynamic because everybody looks at anyone outside of their culture as. Primitive or quaint when they use things in a different way, as we were just talking about before. But getting on to the Middle Ages, I would like to just uh, move it along a little bit and just say that, like yeah, uh, let's some get of the
1: that sw- heavy gear.
0: So, what's some of the swords that stick out that are legendary, which kind of give us the mythos
1: of? Well, it's in the Middle Ages, like that early Middle Ages uh, zone, that you begin to see the first cross pieces really coming into play on a regular basis to you know allow a place for the hand to. Mm-hmm. You know, come into play and prevent a blade, you know, that you could stop another blade using the cross piece on your sword. Uh, prior to that, that was not a facet of swords. Mm-hmm. That that was not a, a...
0: That's what you carried a shield for.
1: Yeah, you know. Uh, the, the sword was for striking at your opponent, be it by thrusting or slashing, and it had no other purpose. It, it was not your other weapon for parrying. Uh-huh. Right,
0: because why, cause sometimes it could damage or bend it. Yeah. And yeah, on the battlefield, you can kick it out, but uh, superior steel did not bend. It flexed. And you could shatter other blades or just ruin them with some. Simple... Oh, and
1: by then, I mean, you know, Damascus type steel, which emerged out of India, uh, the Wootz process, mm-hmm. uh, and then migrated north and then worked its way all the way up to Spain. You know, once. Damascus type steel had started coming to play. You had wonderfully flexible blades that could sustain damage in combat. And, so and this the style kind of gave of combat it. changes.
0: And also some of the meteorotic steels that have been found in a few Viking graves. Oh, that's yeah. crazy stuff to imagine that you know, they see where a star falls and <laughs> the metal of the gods. Once it is it took incredible heat to smelt this down. But once it did so it was incredibly strong.
1: Yeah, uh, the legendary the things that you know people beheld with amazement. And yes, there are blades of meteoric iron from history.
0: Uh, so Joyous uh, from uh, Charlemagne, Charlemagne. Uh, was one. Uh, the Sword of Roland is another allegedly mythical but legendary item that has sort of crept in from time to time. Uh, you can see Joyous replicated very much in mini wallhanger art swords. Sure. Because it's just so ubiquitous. But uh, the crown sword of the House of Windsor?
1: Oh, uh, yeah, as part of the uh, Royal Crown Jewels. Uh, yeah, the Regalia. The, of... It's the Sword of Mercy. Yes, yeah, uh, the Sword of Mercy, thank you. <laughs> well, because it's not used to kill people. There are myths about that. Like, you know, that uh, the, the tip was, like, n- knocked off the blade so that it was no longer sharp. Uh, so it was not to kill people. Uh, and it was done by an angel. Which, eh, Highly unlikely. Uh, probably. Either. But yeah, it was made to. There's some speculation that it may have been like had the end snipped so that you, uh, during some of these proceedings, monarchs would not be tempted to just. Oh, I hate this guy. Oh, Henry
0: VIII, did... gout ridden hand <laughs> p- dropping the blade. Oops! <laughs> On somebody's foot. Yeah, good. That...
1: Uh, you know, there, there's mythology and then there's you know, like a. Uh, real-world antecedents. But yeah, the Sword of Mercy, which is a beloved uh, part of the actual British ground jewels.
0: Some of the Teutonic blades that still survive from the Knightly Orders, as well as the the Maltese blade.
1: Oh, and the uh, the legendary sword in Japan that is uh, supposed to belong to the storm god, Susano. Yes. Uh, uh, what was it? uh something, but it is a a uh, beloved and you know heroic uh weapon that
0: yeah, including the emperor's blade,
1: which I believe is still missing, yeah, uh, am I correct yeah okay yeah
0: hasn't been found, but there there's not only archaeological evidence but legitimate like it, it was moved yeah,
1: its location was known up until the end of World War two
0: right, okay. and then there weren't many photographs of it because it was seen as a sacred object and not. Meant for public display and eyes only, uh, only royal eyes only were really required to see it. Such is the mysticism that is associated with the katana. And that brings us to the last part of this that I just kind of wanted to up as before we get into the fantasy, unless you have some other things to add to this.
1: Oh, um, well, let's see. We've, no, I believe we've covered almost everything that I felt was extremely important. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did want to pause oh. a little moment on one of the uh, the side evolutions of the sword. Uh, another famous one was the seven branch sword that was never actually intended for combat, but it was a gift uh, from you know between Korea and Japan during an era in which historically we thought there was no communication between those two countries. It actually like the discovery of that item proved that there was greater contact, trade, and political relations between those two countries centuries before the world, or the the historical community, believed that there was communication. So that was a sword that had a big impact on our view of history, Hmm. even if it was not a combat weapon.
0: Yeah, well, okay, Uh, here's an aside to a real-world sword, is um, the Wilkinson bladesmiths that are usually employed by the Royal House of Windsor were commissioned in World War II to make a sword for the the sacrifice of the Soviet people and was given to Joseph Stalin at Hmm. a meeting in 1943 between Churchill and Stalin. Wow. And it was said that when he received it, that Joseph Stalin was moved to tears by its beauty because it was created in the Soviet style of the proletariat bold lettering and red stars.
1: Hmm.
0: And with a sickle at the uh, hand and the sickle on the end. completely used the motifs of the communist regime at the time. But for those uh, interested, it's still around, and um, it can be viewed today in the Moscow Museum. But uh, Joe Stalin uh, handed it to one of his aides who dropped it, and then apparently you go to Gulag.
1: (laughs) You bet you go to Gulag. Oh, man.
0: But, yeah, there's been many ceremonial swords that have been given as gifts. And, of course, Great Britain, the empire of empires, coming to the Soviet Union to present them the workers paradise <coughs> <coughs> under Joe Stalin. Yeah, uh mm, all right, yep, my irony meter broke, sorry. Yeah, um yeah, yeah. yeah, but they gave here's the um, Empire of Kings and going to the uh People's Commissariat Commissar uh head commissar Joe Stalin himself and bequeathing the sword. It is a moment of history that they chose the sword. Even though filled with Soviet iconography. But, yeah, getting to the katana, here you see the height of swords, and a lot of people overly fetishize katanas. Um, the early katanas that we know about, not the best made swords, but the well, yeah. loving attention to every... we go every back to de- the,
1: the tachi, which was the very first, like, longer bladed, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there's three... steel sword of Japan. It was the prototype, and, yeah, admittedly, they were still working out this specifics. Right,
0: but soon as they got it down, there were three types of katanas, and... You know the no dachi, which the like, two handed you know horse cleaver, yeah, and, and all the way down to what was the standard katana, which the kanata, uh, kanado and the, all the others, and the slightly more. I don't want to use a word here, but the, it's been called the effete katana, which was meant more as a ceremonial.
1: What the wakizashi? No, oh,
0: it was meant in more as a ceremonial piece, not really intended for combat, and didn't have the double backing. Daimyo. Yeah, that, that would be a politer term. But, okay. Yeah. I, but either way, they, those three blades were different aspects. The Nodachi, of course, was made just for cleaving horses. You know, for basically grunt work on the battlefield. It had no ceremonial application because it was so freaking big.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's really just there to sweep the legs out from underneath horses. And uh, Because, like, being... I, I'm a great fan of horses, and I love them, and I'm always upset... Slightly by things that like do great harm to horses, but if you've ever been on the receiving end of a cavalry charge and you're on you the ground, to your foot, then uh, well, yep.
0: yeah. There's a whole culture of how Japanese uh, men walk aside. You have to approach from the left side, just like driving a car, because your sword side is you always have. It. Even if you're left-handed, you still draw it from the left side. That is something that's still today. There's a whole etiquette on the culture of the sword. And it was not just the blade itself to the style, it was the status of carrying that blade that had all these rules attached to it. You know, you, swords, uh, scabbards touched each other. That was usually in invitation. it was bad form, and also an invitation to a duel.
1: Oh, and I'm trying to remember uh, one of the masterpieces, uh, one of the greatest swords ever made. Uh, the Hanto Mas- Masamune. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, named the, the second half, named after the uh, actual maker of the blade. Right. So, I mean, it is historically recorded, you know, that there is uh, literal information on this, but I be- was that the one that disappeared from, uh, you know, at the end of World War II? The, the Masamune?
0: Uh, I know it was part of the Emperor's Regalia, so maybe okay. it is, maybe it is. Uh,
1: but, yeah, magnificent example of the sword maker's art. Uh, yeah, they, they travel a long way uh, in terms of developing the most efficient blades uh, for slashing.
0: Yeah, so forgive us, we kind of were rambling on this one. This is what we want to do. This is kind of a a sword jam, if you want to do it. Yeah. We're just kind of doing a little beat on this one, because I figured that would be the best way just to throw out out, out a chimp, But
1: I agree. I, look, it's a subject... Let's dive into the fantasy realm as our... Like, oh, well, yeah, because we're tying in... We have covered some of the things that inspired uh, our perception of the sword as a weapon uh, historically. That in every culture, as we move around the globe, uh, you know, the mythological beings that uh, ruled over the heavens uh, also had their weapons, which they loved uh, and named. And you find the naming of weapons more common when it's a mythological figure wielding it. Ah uh, real life figures somewhat less so. It, it took somebody who was of great station to, you know, really have a have people remember the name of the weapon more than a generation later. Right. But and the naming of swords was the most common of all. You you did just you don't find that many you know, this was my mace Steve. <laughs> you know, just nobody cares. Uh, I, I'm sure people may have done that, you know, this is my mace Steve. It's my rifle Maple. But nobody cared, and yeah, yeah, when you did that with a sword, you maybe had the sword maker write the name on it, and generation after generation hanging on the mantelpiece, long forgotten, it's still there, so right,
0: so yeah. when uh Fritz Lieber
1: had gray uh Fafford with gray
0: wand and the gray mouser with cat's paw, his rapier or
1: what was it cat's claw,
0: yeah cat's cat's claw, and cat's paw. They were, he was ripping off the historical seen that most warriors had a name for their weapon. Uh, you've seen a lot in the Norse epics, especially some of the... Uh,
1: oh, yeah, like Graham, yeah. the sort of a uh, cigarette.
0: Yep, and then you also see a lot of it on the Saxon tales later on. But Romans were known for it, as well as some of the Greeks. Uh, and obviously... The Irish, uh, yeah, There
1: was a cattle bold of the, the Celts, uh, which I trying to remember the name of the uh, I believe it was Fergus. But yeah, the, the wielder of Cattle Bogue. Uh, and yeah, the naming of swords, man. You you find it scattered throughout history uh, with magical powers attributed to the blade. Uh, and man of course gaming, Stormbringer. Did gaming jump on Yeah, deck. with
0: Storm Michael Marcock's Stormbringer, you had a sword that was a real character. No, not necessarily.
1: <laughs> the other person in the room. And that person was a jerk and a serial killer. Concrete. So. <laughs> <Kind of crazy. laughs>
0: Stormbringer, this sword will be the end of me. Hmm. Being very prophetic there, Eric. <laughs> Elric, aren't you? Yeah, so <clears throat> Elric aside. Not Eric. goodness. Uh, get stuck on that Viking stuff. Yeah, the, uh, the idea of having the magical sword comes into play here because many attributes were given to Excalibur, Joyos, and all these other blades. And now, here was a vehicle where you could not just use fantasy literature, just to kind of give them that kind of ambiance. Obviously, Grey Wond and Cat's Claw didn't have, or Cat's Paw, didn't have as much uh, magical attributes as they were the wielders using them. Because Bappard lost many swords, but they were always named the same. But here's one where you had in the back of the list of the artifacts in Eldritch Wizardry, there was one weapon. and there were two. There were actually the Mesa St. Cuthbert. Yeah. But that's due to the Welsh connotation of I think Gygax's family. Um but I also think that the other part here that the sort of cos um for a lot of people was this Uber relic that could be like, oh yeah, Sword of Kos can just do anything you want. But when you look at the history, one of the things that took me back was a conversation me and Mike had early on. And I had this vision of this, like, black death metal album cover of the sort of costume. And Mike's like, no, I, I've always imagined it as, like, this old short sword. This old black iron short sword. With, yeah, some inscriptions on it and probably, yeah, like, a skull on the hilt or something like that. But it would be a much simpler weapon than this really abstract kind of Stormbringer-esque design. And I was
1: kind of yeah, like... the broadsword was uh, historically an early heavy short sword. Uh, it, it, it was in the interim period between the short sword and the long sword came the broadsword, where it had greater width for the blade, greater weight, uh, and greater length than the short swords had, but had not yet reached the longer, slenderer form of... And so I I imagined it as just, you know, like this truly utilitarian, pragmatic, you know, no excess ornamentation, just, you know, like the runes of its maker, uh, you know, just the heavy, dark, and I mean, just sitting there like an old-fashioned reveal.
0: Yeah, when everybody was using bronze swords, this was a black meteorotic iron sword of death, and it was longer, it was thicker, and it was lighter
1: than any other blade before it. And you looked at it and you knew it meant business.
0: Yeah, so I've always had, I really grew to that, and I sat and chewed on it for a while, and I was like, you know, like, I put on this that it was the first sort of that type, and from all others, it was modeled.
1: Ah, all the others came after. Like, we want to be like that.
0: And that's how much effect it had. And, of course, your version of, the sort of cost may vary. I mean, they've had, they've went through various things from a unicorn's horn, which are with a basket hilt. Uh, I was like, yeah, okay, that's fine. I mean, anything's possible. It's
1: Oh, that does remind me of something that I I did want to mention that I I had forgotten. I wish I'd remembered it before. No. The de-evolution of the sword. Like there was a lengthy period where it only got much, much larger. Uh, as physics and chemistry made it possible. Uh, <laughs> there was another period where it began to change, because armor started going out of style, uh, and the blades became more perfunctory, but then you see the rapier and the gauche you know, the, the sword and dagger, mm-hmm. two-weapon-style fighting, uh, or, you know, sword and stiletto.
0: With sword and cape.
1: Yeah. And you began to see an entirely different type of battle, where... Uh it had more to it came back once again to thrusting and pointing after having begun as a weapon used to thrust and point, and then evolving into slash and chop and cut. Uh, and then it worked its way back to fine point work. Watching that ebb and flow across like two thousand years is kind it of coincides
0: bizarre. with the way that the uh, sort of Cost has been interpreted through the editions, and I think that's poignant. What I also think is poignant is the way that sometimes I stare at something and then, and then yes, all time and space becomes nothing. A veil is parted, and you are once again subjected to the gaze of the arcane eye. That's right, the Arcane Eye has returned, and with a vengeance, forcing you to look at small projects across the indie gaming sphere, and geekdom as well. So, what does the Arcane Eye unveil for us this week? Why, it's the Lat-Am Breakout, a Latin American gaming jam Kickstarter that's got about six days to go.
1: Yeah, and I gotta hand it to them. Uh, this is a five-game uh, bundle.
0: Yeah, five and, games, five creators.
1: And look, by bundle, I do not mean that it's rigid and absolutely a bundle, okay? Uh, the individual games uh, can, you know, be uh, picked up. Uh, support for the project at different levels. Like, hey, you know, you just want one? Support at this level. It's okay. So they've, they've done a wonderful multi-tier thing here. But there are five different projects underway on this. Yeah,
0: and, it'll set you back for about 67 bucks. Uh, American, but uh, what it gives you, man, such a dynamic and diverse.
1: Oh, uh, what an array of games, man! Just very like five different projects, five different imaginations, uh, five different games, and what games they are. Yep, a couple not really my style so much. But right, but you know, couple, usually uh, people from
0: northern your uh, hemisphere get a lot of attention in role playing game uh, creation. And in this part, here we get to see some spicy South American <laughs> stuff. So, Gilano, Roberto, uh, Luna, Wendy Yu, Rachi, and Misha Panarin. Uh, they all cre- are featured in this. And there's five games. We're just going to breeze through them real quick here. Brave Zenith,
1: uh, which is... Yeah, inspired by Brazilian culture and long summer nights playing, uh, you know, JRPGs on a pirated PS1. <laughs> yeah, uh, wow. They, they came up with, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, Brave Zenith uh, is a post fantasy tabletop RPG. So uh, <laughs> it's got humans, cat folks, and jellies.
0: Uh, yep. And you get six uh, variations freelancer, mixologist, magic user, dancer. Thief, dancer, hunter. Yep. And, uh, there's a lot of uh, uniqueness in that one. But... Weird
1: races, the capybara. It's like half capybara, yeah, the capybara, half jabberwocky, 100% monstrous. <laughs> yeah. uh, unique creatures to be found there. Lots of weirdness. Uh, very uh, cartoonish. Uh, you know, cute art going on there. Yeah, really a diverse. Uh, Less of my style, but uh, uh, still, I gotta say, it looks adorable.
0: Yep, and <laughs> um, ultra gaitera. And this is a more or less a uh, post apocalyptic game, but it's kind of, as they say, equal parts deadpan and unapologetically gonzo, whatever that means. <laughs> and uh. Sans and Fantasy colliding in a uh, post apocalyptic uh, resor- resource poor world,
1: urban so- landscape.
0: Uh, yeah, know. in an urban landscape rather than a, a wasteland. Yeah. So, this one's pretty cool. It sounds uh, like it would be a lot of fun. Nice kind of weird avant-garde cover to it as well. And then my favorite, Here There Be Monsters. And <laughs> I'm just going to read it off. And of this.
1: commas are important in that. It's here, comma, there, comma, be monsters. <laughs> okay. So, here,
0: there, be monsters. Yeah, that is a very important... The importance of the commas. Yeah. In sentences. So... <laughs> It's a love letter and a middle finger all at the same time to like Hellboy, the BRPD, uh, the SCP Foundation, Men in Black, Laundry Files, Word of Darkness, and, of course, urban fantasy game genres in general. It is
1: explicitly uh queer, anti-fascist, and anti-capitalist game about the monstrous and the weird in any flavor you want, not as something to be feared, but to be cherished and protected. Uh you're the weirdos, the misfits, the outcasts, the anomalies, the magicians, monsters, and things that uh, uh, are attempting, you know, to continue to exist in a world that keeps trying to kind of steamroll over top of you and put you out of existence.
0: Yeah, so, and yeah. Wendy you is the one who did this, and it's got a good artwork from Lino Aruda and editing from Samuel Miu Shen. So it looks pretty cool as well. But it is one of those that's not for the faint of heart. And then there's Mayflies,
1: which... Now this is... I'm going to go with my first assessment on this. It reminds me of like a a surreal floating islands version of Settlers of Catan. Uh, This is a much lower... Yeah, this is
0: another post-apoc world where uh, it's resource poor and you have to manage that as well, not only just get for your, it's yourself. It's
1: world of flying islands, going from island, island to isle in search of resources for their own village and island. Uh, it's it's a barren post-apocalyptic world in the sense that everyone has barely enough resources for themselves, but it's a beautiful world where people are free and can embrace their own cultures without the, you know, weight of all of the, the traditional uh, history of the actual Earth. So, this, uh, it just, one glimpse at it, uh, just looking at the art, uh, I, it, I believe that's Stephanie Arcus that did the, uh, the illustration that's available to us there. It is weird and kind of beautiful. Uh, very surreal. Yep. Reminds so, me a little of the movie Mirror Mask.
0: Sure. <laughs> very trippy. And it, uh, it's a game of, uh, rules-like game of strong relations and tough decisions. So I think that sums it up. And then Cantrip.
1: Which, this is the winner for the, like, you know, cute, fun category. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the the runner-up for me for cute, fun category. Yeah, basically a
0: witch's academy, a magical school, and um, the owl house of the high school anime, and...
1: Constant scheming of your fellow witches. Uh, it takes cues from things like Little Witch Academia, the owl house, and high school animes... Uh, as well as Witch Hat Atelier at Unseen University. You know, a lot of concepts went into making.
0: Yeah, and you may be it, familiar with. it's another one of those that's very queer-friendly, and it rejects uh, the unfun tropes that tend to show up in a lot of the media that some people object to. But, again, well, it's a re-examination of a familiar but beloved trope without some of the uh, back weight from it.
1: Yeah, and I, like I don't even want to use the the friendly term for it because I mean the, the truth is it's just sort of open source. Like, you know, where do you want to go with this? There's a lot of social aspects in that particular game, and as it is a lot of social aspects in the 21st century, then for 21st century players, it will have those social aspects included, and it does not attempt to nerf them. Yeah, so, so. you know, I, I thought it was kind of realistically grounded, but not like overt. Uh, in your face.
0: Yeah, so the Latin American Breakout, uh, Brave Zenith, Ultra Eterna, and here, comma, there, comma, B, comma, Monsters. monsters. <laughs> and Mayfly, Mayflies in, in Cantra. Five games from five unique people
1: and five unique systems. And if you peek at one of them and you think of one that, like, you know, man, all right, that would be a thing to, to try out. They have lower tier pledges that, you know, you can just yeah, zero in on and say this is the one I would like, and boom, that's the one you get. Uh, So, (laughs) yeah, and this is all under the banner of Soul Muppet Publishing,
0: and, of course, we support independent games and new perspectives into the hobby because that's how we grow here in RPG land.
1: Well, yeah, and Soul Muppet Publishing, uh, they've done some indie RPGs and RPG adventures, uh, like Best Left Buried, Orbital Blues, and Esoteric Enterprises. So I thought to myself, you know, Man, I like where they're going with this. But, uh, you know, it's nice to see stuff from other perspectives. Because uh, I am guilty as charged of occasionally falling into routine. Where, you know, I will hone in on a state of mind and then it's hard to get away from it. But yeah,
0: even if you just take it and mine a few ideas out of it as well worth the time. and, and Worth the price of admission. We shall
1: dispel.
0: But dispel. yes, the arcane, I... Closes its gaze on you and returns you back to your world of normality. Where we were talking about magical swords and winding it up and putting a bow on it. I think that um, the magical sword looms large in our mindset because, it, like any other weapon, sees you with as set above the norm. Yeah. Of, and possessing a sword of power or greatness marks you as a hero of epic proportions, or at least of destiny.
1: It's one of the aspirations that uh, every player playing a fighter, or and a paladin, a... or, you know, ranger, like, everybody playing one of the warrior classes, it's what they aim towards. It's one of the thrills of the game, and it has been since the beginning. And we owe that all to the amazing history that the sword has had throughout the world.
0: Yep, and archers are the other white meat, so... You <laughs> all you bow lovers out there, that's what I have to say about you.
1: Uh, uh, yep. Camper, the other white meat. <laughs> but
0: yes, with, with the sword, it's mark of excellence and the resources necessary to make a sword, first of all, and bring it not only into shape, but into full... Production is a mark of a civilization. So once you've achieved swordhood, you're there with the rest of them.
1: Sorted! Sorted! So, yeah,
0: that's our sorted episode. We hope you enjoyed it. It was kind of a free form for us. We just wanted to do a little beat off the top of historical and fantasy fiction on it. Didn't get too much in the fiction on this one, but we've covered that in some other podcasts. Yeah, so, so
1: you know, we didn't feel a great pressure to yeah. go on the fictional binge, but much more the historical and mythological. All All right. right.
0: yep, that'll do it for us So we hope you enjoyed the podcast Of course, you can always get a hold of us On our Facebook page at The Dice are Screaming And of course, you can leave any comments or questions By downloading the Anchor app And leaving us one And we'll put you on the show But that will do it for us So see you next time Until then, may the dice always roll in your favor We're out See ya